So I wonder if I can ask a favor on this Veterans Day weekend. If you're a veteran or active duty, would you do us the honor of standing and by proxy representing all the men and women that, that serve in our armed forces? Can we appreciate these guys? If you're a family member, would you stand too? You guys sacrifice too. Come on, family members of all these veterans. Come on. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm so glad that you're here today, and I trust that, that in fact, you will feel appreciated. We're in a series we're calling Grateful, and we've been talking throughout the month uh, about the various things that we're grateful for that, quite frankly, if we're not really intentional about, we'll start taking for granted. We just kind of, we talked about this idea that we serve a God who gives us fresh starts, and we just kind of get used to a gracious God after a while, and, uh, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to take that for granted. We talked about being able to testify and give testimony uh, of that new life that we have in Christ, and I'm thrilled. Pastor Andy said it, 20, some people are being baptized here at Princeton next week, a total of 33 across all our locations are being baptized next Sunday. We celebrate that. Praise God. In fact, once a month, I promised you a praise report of what's going on. We set some goals in terms of people coming to Christ. I just got the report through October. Are you ready for this? 222 people have given their lives to Christ in the ministry of the bridge this year alone. Praise God. We're going to be baptizing 32, 33 of them next week. A bunch of them are middle schoolers. I mean, it's like seven people from the middle school that are making that established uh, a statement of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then lots of adults and couples and God's doing cool stuff. I think it's vital that we pause uh, to, to do that, to talk about gratitude, to talk about things we ought to be grateful for. And I think it's vital that on weekends like Veterans Day that we pause and express gratitude for that. I think it's important that we honor the men and women who serve. And, uh, and even though you'd rather we didn't, you'd rather just stay in the background, I think it's important that we do that. I think it's important that we, uh, that we do parades and wave the flag and, and have barbecues. I think that's important stuff. But to be honest with you, as we as we, as we led up to this Sunday and as I thought and pondered and prayed about how I would communicate uh, gratitude to all of you men and women and all who have served and challenge us to be grateful at the same time, I wondered, there's got to be more than I got to eat barbecue <laughs> to really show gratitude. And uh, it occurred to me that because of the sacrifices that you and so many hundreds of thousands have made, over the years and the couple of centuries in our nation um, and the sacrifice ultimately that Jesus paid for us to have freedom, that, that the best way to show gratitude is not to squander our freedoms, to just full leverage go after it. I mean, if you men and women have served sacrificially in order for us to have them, then the most ungrateful thing we can do is not take advantage of them, not lean into them and, in fact, ultimately squander our freedom. So in the few minutes that we've got this morning, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about some of the freedoms that are inherent in who we are in Christ. And I want to challenge you to give some honest thought to how well you are leveraging that freedom in your own life. Are you, in fact, squandering your freedoms? Or are you making choices, ultimately, that takes advantage of the freedoms that are available to you? Let me say quickly um, that because Kim and I have been in missions uh, all of our adult life, we probably have more friends who are in love with Jesus who are not American citizens than who are. 
I mean, we know a lot of Americans that know Jesus, but we're an awful lot of Asians and Latin Americans and people around the world that are in love with Jesus. And, and some of them probably are watching online today. And so I, I want you to hear me say that I don't equate Christianity with being an American, okay? But I don't think there's any conflict between being an American and being a Christian. I think we live in a nation where we have the freedom to live out our Christian faith wide open. And so if we're gonna, not going to squander our freedoms, we really can't talk about American freedoms without talking about Christian freedoms as well. Because quite frankly, there are a lot of nations on this planet who would love to have the freedoms that we have. I mean, start with a billion uh, Chinese who if they speak out about uh, anything that contradicts the government, and from reports I'm hearing, 300 million Christian Chinese, that if they talk about their faith, they'll be imprisoned. Talk about the Muslim nations of the world. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus Christ who live in those Muslim nations, but if they're open about their faith, they'll go to jail. Talk about the 25 million who live in North Korea. I mean, we could go on and on and on, and the millions upon millions of people around this world who would love to have our freedoms. And so that in itself would be enough to tell us, don't waste your freedom. Take full advantage of it. Let's go into it. The freedom is at the core of what formed our nation. It was our founding fathers who first wrote the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty or freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. If there's anything that we hold precious as a nation, it's freedom. It's one of the things that we talk a lot about even in our international uh, uh, endeavors. But hear me, America was not the originator of freedom. Freedom originally came from Jesus Christ himself. It was Jesus Christ who died to give us freedom from our own sinfulness first and foremost and then the, the, the ability to enjoy freedom. It was Jesus himself who said in John 8, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples and if you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the, you know the rest of that verse and the truth will set you free. That's Jesus. So freedom is at the heart of who he is just as much and even more uh, than at the heart of who we are as Americans. So in the time I've got today with you guys, I, I want to talk about gratitude through the lens of some of our freedoms. In fact, I want to look at three specific freedoms that we have for which Jesus gave his life and hundreds of thousands have sacrificed to preserve since then. And then I want to challenge us in a very uh, a practical kind of way, very personal, practical kind of way, I want to challenge us to honor their sacrifices uh, by not squandering our freedoms. Is that worth a few minutes of our time? And then we can get off to the barbecues and the parades and the flag waving and let's do all that stuff. But for now, let's just pause for a moment. Let's take a parenthesis out and let's talk a little bit about the freedoms that we've been granted. Let's make sure we're not wasting them. The first one I want to share with you and let's talk about is just simply freedom of speech. Is that important? Yeah, it's huge, and, and it's, again, at the heart of, uh, of our great nation. Congress, the First Amendment says, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We, as Americans... Uh, consider speech to be a fundamental freedom that we enjoy. Frankly, again, most 
citizens of the world would love to have the freedoms that we have. But I need to, I need to make sure that we're on the same page here. When I talk about freedom of speech, I am not talking about the freedom to say whatever you think anytime you think it and go after anybody who disagrees with you. Go on social media and call them stupid. That, that's not, I, I don't believe for a minute that's what the founding fathers meant, and I don't believe for a minute that's what Jesus meant. When he said we should be free. In fact, Jesus is pretty clear about it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. It's on your screens. Here we go. Let's read it together. Let, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Does that sound like freedom to say whatever you want to say whenever you want to? Does that sound like whatever comes up gets to come out? Does that sound like you can have diarrhea of the mouth even if you've got constipation out of the brain? <laughs> That's not what that says. What does it say? It says you have the freedom to say yes when you should say yes, and you have the freedom to say no when you should say no. But we don't always do that, do we? Look at somebody and say, preacher just told the truth. (laughs) We don't always do that. The simple truth is we don't. I mean, even committed followers of Jesus Christ, we don't. Let's just look at a few things that, uh, that we should say, but we don't. And then let's look at a few things that we, sh- or things we shouldn't say, but we do. And then look at some things that we should say and we, we don't. Let's, let's just unpack it, okay? Have you ever found yourself, you can sit real still so nobody will know, but have you found yourself in a situation where uh, you're saying yes but you know as you walk away, why did I say yes to that? Come on, anybody, yeah. No brave souls in the room. We all do it sometimes. It's part of our southern graces to do it sometimes. But hear me, guys, when you do, you know what happens. You wind up running, uh, running around playing catch-up all the time. You're going around apologizing all the time, saying, sorry, I didn't get around to that. I said I would, but I didn't. I forgot. You're always burning the midnight oil, trying to meet deadlines simply because you couldn't bring yourself to say, you want to say it around me too? No, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. There's something in us that makes it very difficult to do that sometimes. How about this one? This is one I used to struggle with and still do sometimes, but, but I had a huge battle with it early in my life in ministry, and that's, uh, oh, that's fine. You ever said, oh, that's fine? When ain't nothing fine about it? <laughs> Come on. I mean, I've struggled with that one because I wanted people to like me so much and I wanted to avoid conflict so much. I'd say it's fine when it wasn't fine. Oh, no, you did good. No, that was great, man. Sure. No, no, it's fine. No, that's enough. No, that's good. You know, you never sent me to negotiate because I'd give away the farm. <laughs> I was just horrible at this stuff because I, and I finally had to face the reality that I was a liar. But I was telling people it's fine when it isn't fine at all, which means I was lying to them. That's hard reality for a Christian and a pastor, but it was the truth, and I had to face that reality. Some of you perhaps need to do that as well. Here's one. A lot of servant-hearted Christians struggle with this one. I'll t- oh, no, I'll take care of that for you. You ever done that one? Oh, I, I got that one. And sometimes it's because... We genuinely love to serve, but sometimes it's because we got a martyr complex and we need to overwork so that we can complain later about you just can't get nobody to do nothing anymore. 
right? Or a Messiah complex that says, I'm the only one who can do this stuff and do it well. So if I don't do it, it won't get done properly. Therefore, I'll have to do this one myself. Jim has quit preaching and gone to meddling. Just move on, Pastor. But hear me, no matter what the the reason that you say, I'll take care of that for you, it never occurs to us to stop and say, okay, that sounds important, but am I really the one who should be doing it, or is there somebody else better suited to do that than me? Let me make sure we're clear about something, okay? Uh, this is, I believe it's a biblical truth. Psalm 139, uh, Father, Lord, you saw me in my mother's womb. You handmade me. All the days of my life were ordained before I was even born. That's Scripture, right? Do you hear it's like this? It's in the Word, okay? And so what that says to me is that God made every one of us on purpose, with a purpose, that he shaped us for that, and then he defined this amazing plan for us. Now, here's the genius of our God. He gives us freedom of choice. We'll talk about that one in a minute. And so some of our choices help us to accomplish God's plan and some don't. But he even weaves that, Romans 8, 28. He even weaves those into the pattern for good if we love him. So if you get it right, well, that worked out real good. If you get it wrong, ooh, that hurt, but I learned from that. And so he still carries us down this road. But what that says to me is that I have all of the time and resources and relationships and opportunities that I need to accomplish everything that God put me on the planet to do. Does that make sense? But if I start doing a bunch of stuff that he put you on the planet to do, then not only am I stretching myself too thinly, not able to accomplish what I'm supposed to do, but I'm depriving you of the privilege of doing it. And that's what he put you here to do. Does that make sense, guys? And so when Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, part of what he's talking about is figure out what your purpose and plan is, uh, a purpose for being here and God's plan is for your life, and then make sure that you say yes to the things you should say yes to and say no to the things that you should say no to. That's harder than it sounds. Sometimes because we put high expectations on ourselves. We think we should be able to do more than we can realistically do. Other times, and I think most frequently, it's because other people put expectations on us. And we want to live up to their expectations. I see a few heads nodding. My favorite illustration of that came a few years ago when I was leading the previous church we were in. A fellow called the church one day, wanted to talk to me, and when the office manager asked him uh, uh, if she could help him, maybe connect him to somebody else because I wasn't available, he said, no, no, I, only, I need to talk to Pastor Jim. And so he called back the next day, and I was in a meeting or I was gone or whatever. It went on for a week. He never could get up with me. And so finally, about a week into it, he finally, I was there and available, and he took, I took the call, and I said, how can I serve you? And he said, well, I've been trying to get up with you for a week. And he just started in complaining about how hard it was to get up with me. And I said, well, I'm sorry. How can I serve you? He, and he told me what he needed. And I said, well, dude, I don't handle that here. <laughs> Let me connect you with the person that, that does that. I said, why, why did you insist on talking to me? You could have had your need met a week ago if you talked to the person who does that. He said, well, when I need something, I'll go to the top. I said, well, I'm not the top of that. <laughs> so 
somebody else is the top of that. So I love it when somebody, when one of you guys comes to me and says, Pastor Jim, I know you probably don't handle this, but maybe you can direct me to the person who does. I love that because I know I have got a, got a, a, a plan and a purpose, and God has one for my life and for yours and for yours and for yours, and part of my job is to put gifted people and match them up with valid needs, and then we work together as a team. That's a huge part of my job as your pastor. But your job is to say yes to the things God wants you to do and to say no to the things that would pull you away from that. Make sense? So let your yes be yes and your no be no. You have the freedom in Christ to do that. Can I mention some things that we should say but oftentimes we struggle to say? Would that be all right too? Three yes like this. Okay, all right, good. Um, I need... It's so easy for us to say, oh, they need help. She needs help. Boy, they really need help. Well, we ought to help them, but it can be so incredibly difficult to say, I need help. Can somebody help me? And yet that's what we're called to do. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 that we ought to bear one another's burdens and then it says that we ought to be responsible for our own stuff. And so, yeah, there, you ought to do what you can, but then we ought to be helping each other in this journey. Here's one. I don't know. So many people would rather pretend they got it all together than get it all together. They'd rather pretend they know the Bible than actually learn the Bible. Sometimes the smartest thing you can do, say, the most honest thing you can say is, you know, I just don't, I don't know that one. Let's see if we can find out. Here's one. You tell me if this is a hard one. I'm sorry I was wrong. Oh, it's so hard to say it. And yet those may be, may be the most powerful words in the English language when said sincerely, I'm sorry I was wrong. Jesus said, let your I'm sorry be I'm sorry when you're sorry. Got it? i got to move on, but my point is simple. The, a huge part of not squandering the freedoms that Jesus paid for and hundreds of thousands of sacrifice to preserve is to every now and then do an, a, a word audit on your language and the things that you say and don't say. In fact, let me give you a homework assignment before you leave. Here's your homework. I want you to spend some time this afternoon, this evening, first opportunity, and sit down and, and say, are there some things I'm saying yes to that i got to quit saying yes to? Are there some things that I'm saying no? to that I know God is calling me to do and it's time for me to step up because you're squandering your freedom of speech until you do make sure that your yes is yes and your no is no and you will leverage the freedoms that God gave you make sense you ready for the next one second one is freedom of choice Again, it's one of those hallmarks of our nation. You have freedom of choice. We are the land of opportunity. There is the great American dream. And yes, let's be honest, there are people in our society that have better advantages than others. And, and it's harder for some than others. Uh, that's a reality. It's a bad reality. It's an injustice. I, I look forward to us continuing to work at, at improving that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, in America, you can an awful lot of people do, and they overcome all kinds of opportunities, uh, obstacles, because we have freedom of choice. Again, we looked at it, Founding Fathers wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of 
happiness. Great words, right? But there's a detail we can't forget in dealing with this, and that is that you have to tie freedom of choice to a universal biblical truth. It's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Let's read it together. I want you to read it out loud, okay? Here we go. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God cannot be mocked simply means once God put that law in place, there ain't nothing you can do to change it. You may disagree with the law of gravity, but if you step out of an airplane, the sidewalk is coming. You know, you, you may actually pass a, a parachute guy along the way, and he'll say, hey, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good so far. You know, it's kind of windy, but it's a good day. But the sidewalk is coming. You can't mock God's laws, thumb your nose at God's law because they're real. Well, one of those laws is what we call the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. So you have freedom of choice, but you don't have freedom from the consequences of your choices. You make choices, and then you set in motion certain things that ultimately become consequential. And so in order to brace this freedom, you've got to understand that some choices are going to lead you toward the rich and satisfying life that we talked about last week, and other choices are going to lead you away from that rich and satisfying life all the way to depression and death. You have to make choices with the consequences in mind. Now, here's the problem. The problem is just like words, there are an awful lot of choices that we make on a regular basis that are pre-programmed into us. Is that true? You know what I mean? There, there are some choices that we make. We never really stop to think about those choices. That's, that's just, we just do it. I don't know if it's nature or nurture or both. You know, either uh, that's just who we are, my personality type. I tend to make this choice because that's my personality type. Or maybe it's nurture. This was trained in me. This was ingrained in me. I was taught this is the way things are supposed to be. And so we make these choices without ever stopping to think about the consequences of those choices. So let's slow down just a minute and let's let's take a look at them, okay? I, and... And in the interest of time, let's just pick one. Let's look at the area of time. If you're going to make choices that relates to your time, you need to be aware of the fact that there are, there are two types of time commitments that usually consume our time. There are vital uh, commitments and there are urgent commitments. Somebody say vital. Somebody say urgent. Two different kinds. You understand the difference? A vital commitment it's one of those things that's necessary to maintain life. For instance, you got to eat, right? If you don't eat, eventually, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Your organs are going to shut down, and you're going to die. You got to eat. Now, if you don't eat, there may be a short-term benefit of losing some weight and that kind of stuff, but eventually, you're going to die. Now, this is an important detail because vital things have consequences that are predetermined but there's usually a time period between the choice and the consequence, okay? So if you don't eat, then you get by for two or three days, you're fine. They get by for a week, you're fine. By the end of week two, you go blind suddenly because you haven't been nourishing your body, right? So, so vital things have consequences that are predetermined, but there's a time period. Urgent things, on the other hand, are not necessarily bad things. They're just the things that aren't vital 
and yet they have immediate consequences, so they get our attention. It's the deadline at work. It's the cell phone that's ringing. It's the stuff that captures our attention all the time, not just because they're loud, but because they have an immediate consequence. Therefore, we think, oh, i got to deal with that one. i got to deal with that one. And before you know it, here's where it's huge. Before you know it, you're making choices to deal with urgent things all the time and neglect the vital things because I can always push that back a day. I can push that back a week. I'll get around to that eventually. Am I right? Is that, does that describe an awful lot of our lives? It does. How many of your parents, you've had kids? It's a great example. You get off work, you want to go home and spend some time with your kids. You love your kids. Tell me you love your kids. Please say, yeah, I love my kids, okay? Well, I love his kids. I'm not sure about mine. But, you know, uh, I love my kids. And so you get off work. You want to go home and spend some time with your kids. You can't wait to find out how they're doing, how was their day. You want to chat with them, play a game with them, maybe help them with their homework, that kind of stuff. But as soon as you walk in the door, the cell phone rings. And it's the boss saying, here's a deadline. You've got to get it done. So you've got to work on it a little bit. And then about the time you get busy with that, the Jehovah's Witness are at the door, and the beans are boiling over on the stove, and you're going, ah, I just, and before you know it, it's bedtime for the kids. And you say, well, I'll spend some time with them tomorrow. And the urgent has crowded out the vital again and again. And again, why? Because the urgent has immediate consequences. The vital have consequences that are huge, but they tend to be further down the road. Trust me when I say, as this white-haired preacher with grown sons, that one day you wake up and go, oh, man, I made choices to ignore the vital for the sake of the urgent, and now they're grown or they're gone. Can I beg you not to squander your freedom of choice by just making those choices as they come, but getting intentional about taking care of the vital even if it is to the neglect of the urgent. Set your priorities based on what's vital. If you don't, the current pressures will be glad to set your priorities for you. Spend some time thinking about the choices that you make. Otherwise, you may well squander your freedom of choice. Here's how Solomon put it, Proverbs 22.3, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple just keep on going and suffer for it. Pastor Jim paraphrased, the smart person focuses on the vital things while the simple people let the urgent things define their lives. And that's why we started this year. If you were part of the bridge at the beginning of the year, you know, we started this year talking about setting priorities and the order of priorities according to Scripture. If you weren't here or if you forgot that, go to our website, get those messages and watch them again. But spend some time thinking through the choices that you make in terms of time commitments because it's huge. And this is not a one-time deal. This This is an ongoing kind of process. That's why my computer saver in my office is laser beam. Why do I do that? Because if I get still long enough for the keyboard not to be functioning long enough for my screensaver to pop up, I'm reminded, Jim, you're going to accomplish more in life if you're a laser beam than if you're a fluorescent tube. 
if you focus on the vital things, then the urgent things will either take care of themselves or you'll find out they weren't as important as you thought they were. Focus on the vital. What is it God put you on this planet to do? And say no to some things that are pulling you away from that. Is that easy? No. It's hard. And it's an ongoing process. Which is why not only do I do that on a regular basis, but at least once a year, come December, Kim and I will have this conversation. We've already started the dialogues around it. At least once a year, we sit down and say, what are we giving our one and only lives to? And does it eternally matter? And Where are we allowing the urgent to crowd out the vital? When is it time for us to choose to change? Because we have the freedom of speech. We also have freedom of choice. And if we don't make the choices that lead us to the vital things in life, then we have, in fact, squandered our freedoms. And the sacrifices that Jesus made and hundreds of thousands of men and women have made since then. So how do you, uh, how, how do you thank those who sacrifice for our freedoms? You can... You can see a service uh, member in uniform and stop and say thank you, and I hope you do. I do. I, I think I do it every time. I try to do it every time. That's good. You can come to church on Veterans Weekend, and we can have them stand and embarrass them long enough to applaud a little bit and be sincere in that appreciation. That's a good thing. But the best thing you can do is don't squander your freedom that they sacrificed for. Don't squander your freedom of speech. Don't squander your freedom of choice and most importantly, number three, don't squander your freedom of worship. Go back to the First Amendment. What did it say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, let's, un let's unpack that a little bit because there's a whole lot of discussion going on these days about this thing called freedom of religion. There are people in America, uh, influential people it seems, who are lobbying that the church should not be tax-exempt, that by Exempting churches from paying income taxes, we are actually establishing religion. That's a strong argument in a lot of political circles these days. I had a conversation one day with a politician who was trying to make that argument, and he tried to convince me that he was right. And I said, well, now just let me be clear about this. What, what you're saying to me is that the, the money that we as a church spend to feed the homeless, to care for the underprivileged, to, to minister to the people in our community, that money would be better spent by the government than by the church? Well, maybe not, he said. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Because of the bureaucracies and the, and the distance and all that sort of thing, we're in a better position to do it. And so please hear me, man. I said the stuff we do in this community is at no cost to you and at no profit to us. That's, we do it because that's who we are. Maybe you ought to leave us alone. I didn't convince him, but at least I shut him up. <laughs> Other people say, uh, yeah, that's worthy of applause. Others say that, that God has no business in the public discourse. I, I got a letter uh, in the former church uh, in Virginia. I got a letter from the city asking me to pray the invocation over city council. And the letter went on to say that, that we have a, uh, a broad spectrum of citizens, so I was welcome to come, but I could not pray in the name of Jesus. So I declined their invitation. I said, ah, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian minister, that's what I do. And so I declined the invitation. 
sometime after I was asked to pray uh, at the Top Cop Awards. Hampton Roads, all seven cities would come together and they would honor uh, police officers who were injured in the line of duty or, or did some heroic uh, over, over, above and beyond the call of duty kind of things that year. And so I was invited to pray. I thought it was a real honor to be there and, and to pray. After it was over, the public relations uh, director for the Norfolk Police Department came to me and said, Pastor, th that was one of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard. And I said, well, thank you. He said, too bad you're never going to be invited back because <laughs> you prayed in the name of Jesus. I said, okay, too bad. I mean, those are the realities uh, of the world that we live in these days uh, as Americans. Th that's true. Some people even want to control what's said in the pulpits. You may not believe that's true, but Canada already has started. There was a pastor in Nova Scotia who was arrested a couple of years ago now because he said something directly from Scripture was a sin, and a, a, a person was in his congregation that morning who went and reported him, and they, they arrested him for a hate crime. Cost him $5,000 to get out of jail for a hate crime simply because he quoted Scripture as something was a sin. Uh, you know, i got to be honest, guys. I don't know what the future holds is this. I, I, you know, it seems to me that Christianity is under attack in America these days. But here's what I know. There's one form of worship that no politician can stop. There's one form of worship that no political system of any kind, no country can stop. And the reason I know that is because it is flourishing in countries all over the world where there's all kinds of oppression. And it's the form of worship that Paul actually refers to as true worship. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. I know when we talk about worship, we, sip, we typically think about coming to church on Sunday morning, singing some songs, lifting our hands, maybe tears flow. There's a, there's a, a great experience that we have in that, and that's fine. I love that. Or it's a night of worship like we do here two or three times a year, and we come together and spend the whole evening uh, singing praise songs and worship to our God, and we pray together and minister to each other. Those, those can be powerful personal experiences with God, and I love them. But Paul is saying the heart of worship is deeper than an experience. The heart of worship is obedience. The heart of worship is God, I am yours. We sang about it this morning. I am yours. Whatever you say, I'm yours. Whatever you call me to do, I'm yours. I won't push back. I won't say no. I'm yours. That's the highest form of worship. In fact, he even goes on to say how, Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In other words, worship is ultimately about breaking free from what the world says about free speech. It's about rising above what the world calls freedom of 
choice of what is urgent and versus what is vital. It's about being changed within by adopting a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding, and then making our beliefs determine our behaviors, saying yes to the things that should be said yes to and the things that should we be saying no to. We say no as an act of worship. What I'm saying to you simply is we have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom of choice. And when we do those things biblically, we elevate the freedom of worship to its highest form. Does that make sense? Again, use, use the parenting illustration. Uh, when your kids do something that gives you the sense that they're, they're actually going to live up to their potential, how do you feel about that? It's like, wow, look, look, my boy got an A. I knew he could. Now my, my girl, you know, made it to the desk recital. I knew she could. I knew, you know, my girl nailed that math quiz. I knew she could. I mean, whatever it is, there's things that you see in your children that you see as potential. And when they realize it, man, it makes you proud. Well, multiply that by the billions of children that God created who when we say, Dad, I want to do what you put me on the planet to do, and he goes, that's my boy, that's my girl. They're doing what I made them to do. When you use those freedoms to become everything God made you to be, that is the truest form of worship. So i got to close. Um, but i got to ask a question. I told you I wanted this to be more than just an academic conversation. I really want this to be a challenge on a personal level. So if you, you don't have to respond, sit real still, but um, if you actually exercised your freedom of speech in the way the Bible describes, uh, and you exercised your freedom of choice in the way that we've talked about today, and you exercised your freedom of worship in its truest form, um, would something have to change in your life? If you started saying yes to everything you were supposed to say yes to and no to everything you're supposed to say no to, if you let the vital things outstretch the urgent things every time, if you became a genuine worshiper, not just on Sunday mornings but every day, would something have to change? I dare say yes for all of us. But unless we're intentional about this, we'll come up to Veterans Day next year and we'll talk about the same thing and nothing will have changed. You heard about the preacher that came out of seminary and he went to his first church and he preached a sermon and everybody shook his hand at the, at, at, after the service and said, boy, that was a wonderful uh, message. We're so glad you're our pastor now. The next week he came back and preached the very same sermon and most people didn't even notice. Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. We're so glad you're our pastor now. The third week he came back, preached the same sermon. And a few people are starting to notice now and they're whispering among themselves, what's the deal? You know, it's, uh, isn't that the same one he preached last week or the week before or something? You know, by the fourth week, the elders of the church are starting to say something's going on. By the fifth week, they called a meeting called the pastor in and said, Pastor, you know, we're glad to have you. We're glad you're here. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's a really good sermon. That's a really good sermon. But, uh, but don't you know some others? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And as soon as you start doing this one, I'll move on to the others. <laughs> so 
How many weeks do I need to preach this sermon? I hope this is it. Do you know why change is hard? Do, do you know why it's hard? It's hard because the person that you're going to become, if you change, is a stranger to you. And it's a stranger to the people that know you. When you start going through that process, change process, not only do you have to become this new person, but the people around you have to let you become this new person. And that's hard. I came to that place. I've come to it many times through the years, but I came to that place in the mid-'90s, and I wrote about it in my book. I call it 1996, the year of crisis, when I came to a place where I realized that the way I was leading the church was actually hindering the church, and I went to my elders, and I resigned. And they said, well, Pastor, we don't think the church will survive without you. Understand, we planted the church. It was seven years old. We'd grown to 1,000 in the first seven years, and, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to lead beyond that point. And so they said, uh, uh, we just don't think the church will survive without you. Notice they didn't say, we love you so much, we don't want you to leave. They said, you've done such a bad job of leading, we'll fall apart if you go. And so I went to my mentor, and I told him the story, and he said, uh, you know what? The church deserves a better leader than you. Yes, sir. <laughs> and then he said, but that doesn't mean it isn't you. What do you need to change? And that became a change season for me. That became a time for me to begin to look at my freedom of speech, my freedom of choice, my freedom of worship, and how I was exercising those things and what I needed to change. Did everybody in my life like the changes I made? No. There were some people left the church because of the changes that I made. That was hard. But at the end of the day, I don't live for an audience of many. I live for an audience of one. His name is Jesus Christ. So here's my closing question, and I'll hush. If you were going to become the husband that you promised to be at the altar, would something have to change? If you were going to be the wife that you promised to be at the altar, would something have to change? If you were going to become the parent that your kids really need, would something have to change? If you were to become the owner at the bridge that you committed to when you took on ownership, would something have to change? If you were going to be the Christian that the extended family and friends and coworkers around you need you to be in order to be salt and light in their lives, would something have to change? I dare say for every one of us, the answer is, yeah, there's some stuff that needs to change. The only question is, what will we do? And I'm begging you, get serious about the change process. Become who God made you to be, and you will be so glad you did. I went through that journey. I actually got in with a counselor. I went back to school. I learned leadership. I was able to stay at the church to lead it from 1,000 to 3,000. But more importantly, I believe he prepared me for the day that I would move to Goldsboro and become the leader of this church. I believe he brought you here to be a part of something that God is doing that is bigger than any of us. You see, I don't think the bridge is just a church. I think it's part of a movement. 
of a revitalization, a revival, if you want to call it that, of the church in America. I'm not ready to give up on America, and I'm not ready to give up on the American church, but in order for us to do what we need to do, we've got to exercise our freedom of speech, our freedom of choice, our freedom of worship in a God-honoring way. Will you join me in that? Stand with me, would you? Thank you, Lord, for loving us even when we're messing it up. You are the God of fresh starts and new beginnings, no matter how many of those we've had. So all we're asking, Lord, is that you be our teacher and our guide, that you give us a glimpse into some of the areas of our life that we need to change. Whether it be the way we use our freedom of speech or the way we exercise our freedom of choice, the way we worship, would you show us what you want us to do? Our answer to you, Lord, is yes. Just show us direction. We'll thank you for the privilege. We'll thank you for the fruit that comes on the other side of it because we get the privilege of bringing you glory in the process. In Jesus' name, keep your heads bound for just a minute. I'm not going to keep you much longer, but I do want you to pray a prayer with me. It may be that you're sitting here or maybe watching online and you've never actually said to God, I want to be who you made me to be. I want a fresh start. But whether you've never said it before or you've said it many times, right now, this moment, can you pray this prayer with me along the lines of what we're talking about? Do it silently or aloud. Do it in your own words, but let's pray it. Lord, help me to use my speech in a way that honors you. Help me to make choices that honor you. Show me how my life can be an act of worship to you. And I will look back on this prayer this day and say, wow, look what God did with my one and only life because I dedicated it to him. Forgive us for our failures and give us a fresh start today. In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are going to be open in a minute. There will be prayer teams here. If you'd like to pray with somebody, please take advantage of that opportunity. If you're a first-time guest, we'd love for you to drop your Connect card off at the VIP table. We want to know you're here. We want to just, nobody's going to show up at your door and say, hey, man, do you enjoy church? But we will reach out to you. We'll send you a note or an email or something. Just reach out to you. We, we want to know you're here. We want to minister to you. Father, take us from this place. Gather us together at the appointed time and use us for your glory in between. In Jesus' name, amen. Next Sunday, we wrap up the Grateful Series. I hope to see you on Thanksgiving Sunday.